HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Sina Rousseau. The series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our summer season previews Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.2, soon to be available online. This issue spotlights the theme of working with food focusing especially on urban transformations, on work and play, and on market values. My guest this week is Stuart Friedman, joining us to discuss his research on London's failing eel, pie, and mash shops. As his contributor biography uh, will appear in the journal, Stuart Friedman is a final year doctoral candidate at the University of Westminster. Originally from East London, his PhD deals with London working-class identity refracted through the area's fading pie shops. For the last 30 years, he has been a photographer and writer working extensively in the Global South. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Congratulations on the article and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'll start by saying that the last line of your contributor bio hardly does justice to your very extensive and remarkable and beautiful, if I might say, portfolio, which listeners could, can find on your website um, on stuartfriedman.com, which includes, and I think very relevantly for our purposes today, a collection of images under your category stories called The Englishman and the Eel. The introduction to which concludes that, and I quote, the eel and its decline is a metaphor of the of the cultural change that enveloped the, the East End of London. What remains is a tenacious and rare creature, endangered but still surviving. Yeah, yeah. So this phrase, endangered but still surviving, is mm-hmm. uh, similarly captured in the full title of your upcoming piece, which is, and uh, and I quote again, resistances from a stubborn past 
colon, London's fading eel pie and mash shops, which her abstract describes as an examination of an essentially proletarian food culture coded through ideas of respectability and manners, and via the concept of a classed body, the notion of sensations, disgust and impurity that condense time and memory around the metaphor of the eel as cockney. Yep. So I'll start by saying that's a lot of responsibility to give to an eel <laughs> or eels. <laughs> I guess it is, yeah. Yeah, and brief research will point out that, you know, the eels became really popular in working as uh, working person's food in sort of Victorian times because it was one of the few fish that was able to survive the extremely polluted waters of the Thames rivers, the River Thames, excuse me, but now seriously dwindling in local populations. So uh, I gather that most of the existing pie shops get their eels from either the Netherlands or Ireland, Northern Ireland. Yeah, I, I think the eel has a longer gustatory history than the 19th century. I mean, the eel fed Londoners for centuries. Um, and it was it was the Dutch who were allegedly because I couldn't really find any any hard evidence of this were rewarded for feeding Londoners during the Great Fire of London in 1666 I think it was uh, with the uh, they were granted a license to sell directly to Londoners bypassing Billingsgate Market uh, so the eel has been this kind of um, food of the working poor for centuries it's not just a 19th century. Um, manifestation but uh, it, it, certainly you know we know we know quite a lot about eel sellers uh, in the 19, in the 18th and 19th centuries um, from uh, from Henry Mayhew the, the Victorian chronicler thank you for uh, clearing that up that the history goes back a little bit further than I had suggested but I mean I guess the point is that there's a lot uh, of both material and intellectual substance uh, to grapple with in your project, which you no doubt, uh, since this is also part of your uh, doctoral work, you no doubt go into in much further complexity. Uh, well, one in... tries one's best, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the thesis is in, and I'm um, I have my defence in uh, I think a month. Yeah, no less than a oh, month. Well. Oh God! Oh God! Yeah, Congratulations. That's well, let's hope they like it, yeah. <laughs> but um, here's where the images on your website, I think, become really interesting and helpful as sort of visual aids for those who are unfamiliar with the history and the context and the sort of physical manifestation of an establishment which is uh, imbued with so much cultural significance. Sure. Um, so if I may... <laughs> ask two opening questions, which mm -hmm. uh, I'll try to keep brief before getting into some of the meatier matters. <laughs> As it were. Yeah. So you set up the eel pie and mash shops in opposition to, and I quote, a place for daydreaming where mm -hmm. time is measured in proof rocks, coffee spoons. Coffee spoons, yeah, absolutely. Which is, of course, from T.S. Eliot's uh, mm. wonderful poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock for listeners who are unfamiliar with the reference to a time and a place where, to quote another line from that poem, that was published, I believe, in 1915, originally. Mm. And the line is, 
or the stances are in the room, the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. And so the pie shops that you focus on are far from such sort of bourgeois playgrounds, if you will, but rather, as in your words, a cheap refueling shop for London's Cockney working class. Absolutely. So the question uh, is, can you briefly explain to listeners Cockney and the significance of London's East End in relation to what comes across as, I think, not just a dialect, but a whole sort of economic class and identity? Sure, sure. Okay, well, Cockney... um... Cockney's complicated, and Cockney is a is a is a is a thing that I try and work on during my during my thesis. And Cockney has changed its meaning quite considerably uh, over the centuries. It's not a it's not a recent thing, um, but we can find it um, in medieval London uh, as referring to urban city dwellers, essentially. And I use Cockney to translate uh, the powerless from the powerful because I think that's a very useful way to think about it. We, we might think of Cockney as, you know, the Dick Van Dyke character in Mary Poppins. We might think of this as a kind of comic, uh, almost cartoonish character. But Cockney was really, uh, was really a kind of many-headed thing. And... Um, in terms of in terms of what we might call the rise of the the urban bourgeoisie, the the, the middle classes, um, Cockney was always a geographic location of London. It wasn't anywhere else. Lots and lots of different notions of where the word came from. A cocker might have been a spoilt child or something like this. But someone that generally was an urbanite wasn't used to getting his hands dirty, which is completely in contrast to how we see modern uh, 19th century classic Cockney notion. Um, the Cockney himself was, was seen by um, the old elites uh, as opposed to the, to the new bourgeois middle classes as a kind of an upstart, um, as a kind of someone that had no class. So in that sense, it delineated um, Keats, who was the Cockney poet. It delineated a whole uh, range of these these people that were seen as kind of interlopers culturally that had no class. Um, And when we get to Dickens, Dickens starts to write about the descent of the Cockney. Weirdly enough, uh, Dickens uses tropes of... um, of mixing up his W's and his V's. It was quite a quite an old-fashioned trope, even by by Dickens's time. But of course, Dickens himself was a North London Cockney. He was part of this interstitial group of lawyers and uh, journalists and and writers who were in opposition to to the old, essentially landed aristocracy. But in Dickens. Um, we see uh, the Cockney being associated with a much more working class, with much more of the urban poor. Um, And so the Cockney descends. And by the end of the century, uh, this Cockney identity is reinforced by by musical um, and is in fact invented 
by several bourgeois performers who um, caricature street performance and uh, the urban poor for various reasons. It's it's coterminous with the new imperialism. It's coterminous with the making of the, uh, the the working class as white in Victorian London. Uh, and the Cockney is seen in a kind of dual fashion. He's kind of seen as a as a comic, uh, a trustworthy comic, but he's also seen as a criminal. So there's this kind of duality going on uh, on the London streets, or that's how it's perceived. That's fascinating. I was thinking also about the My Fair Lady. Yep. And of course, my own research on celebrity chefs more than a decade ago. Unsurprisingly, well, you're going to talk about Jamie quite, Oliver and Mock quite me, a lot right? about Jamie Oliver, who yeah. Yeah. has many times gotten backlash for uh, being a kind of or sporting a fake Cockney accent, even though he did grow up in Essex, which I think is geographically okay for being Cockney. But there's an idea there of the, I think the economic disparity, I suppose, that now he may not be allowed to speak like that because he earns much more money than sure many people. I think what's interesting about about Jamie Oliver is that he is from Essex, and Essex, of course, is the is the dark hinterland of the modern Cockney identity. Uh, it's where the the the, uh, the the modern bourgeois fear of the of the Cockney resides now, but it's also where those. Uh, White, and I use this term white working class again and again, and it's not something I'm very comfortable with, uh, but there's a reason I use it. Uh, it's where London's white working class, who I don't personally see as, a, as an ethnic group at all, uh, have decamped because of notions of, of mass immigration and gentrification. But one thing I, I would say about Essex is that it's where the pie and mass shops are blooming and blossoming because they've died essentially in, in London. Um, and uh, that's a real significance because my work is is really about Cockney identity at the time of Brexit and populism. I see. And the and the and and Cockney and Pi and Mash uh, have become synonymous with with this kind of notion. There is one other thing that I should say. Uh, and my research points to the fact that um, Cockney has has been used, uh, Cockney identities, which I call palimpsestic because there are lots of them. There are lots of different types of Cockney identities that have come and gone. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And and these things tend to be, certainly in after the new imperialism of the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, the memory of Cockney has been revived um, by, by certain sections of what we might call hegemonic culture um, in order to kind of reify authority, the British Empire, notions of class delineation. So the Cockney identity tends to come back when capital is in crisis. Yeah? Um, the notion of, of, of Cockney in the late 19th century as being an obedient servant of, of empire, died in the trenches. Yeah, died in the trenches, but was revived as a kind of notion of ordinariness uh, during the Second World War, during the early years of the Second World War. Um, and that notion of ordinariness 
common ordinariness, uh, the notion that you know we love our gardens, we love our animals, was was revived during the war to get to get Britain through the Blitz, and it dies again <clears throat> uh, in in the sixties when we have this extraordinary blossoming of not necessarily anti-authoritarianism, but questioning of of authority and questioning of hierarchies, and it and it dies until perhaps till perhaps the 80s when that cockney entrepreneurial proletarianism is is reified by thatcher and and it's been brought again to the surface during brexit so i'm gonna i'm glad that you spoke about the pie and mash shops because i'm going to bring it back to the second kind of unpacking a very basic thing and that is that uh as editors we at gastronomica enjoy spirited conversations about punctuation and especially oh. commas oh and uh, the title and the subject of your piece provided another opportunity for us <laughs> to have such a conversation All right. uh, including various google searches to make sure we were getting it right or making the right suggestions about uh, are we separating three different offerings from these pie and mash shops eel pie and mash shops are we talking about eel comma, pie, comma, right. mash, yeah, yeah. as it appears in your article, as it will be published, or eel, comma, pie and mash, or no comma, eel, pie and mash. And I, I gather uh, from my own research that it's not really about an eel pie, it's rather about beef pies, but uh, there is also in the borough of Richmond on Thames, there is a place called Eel Pie Island, yeah, which sure. is famous for uh, uh, rock concerts and jazz concerts and so on. Well, it was in the 60s and 50s, yeah, yeah. Well, sorry to have caused you lots of punctuation issues. No, no, um, we love this stuff. But okay. it would be useful if you could just maybe explain exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about eel pie okay. and mash shops. Let me give you a bit of historical context, because I think that's what my research is. It's the first academic research into this, so I guess it's kind of, it might be useful. Um, so look, eel pies were a thing, okay? Um, <clears throat> and they were what we might call cross-class. And we see Hogarth's drawings or sketches from the 18th century of the pie man, the, the, the wandering pie man, um, who makes his pies from eels. Um, pies were also made of meat, but of course meat was very expensive, eel was very cheap, and unless you were quite wealthy, you would probably eat an eel pie. Uh, it was a perfect cross-class food to eat on the streets. Um, what, we, what we see happening are the establishment of, of eel pie shops, and in my, in my thesis, I link these shops to um, what Thompson calls the breaking of these concentric rings of servitude uh, around the great houses during the, the, the late 17th, early 18th century. And you get these particularly pastry makers and bakers making their way to the cities or making their way to London. Uh, and, and we presume that they opened shops. They opened pie shops where you could buy a pie. Um, and there are lots of, there are lots of, uh, there's very, very little um, 
historical documents of these, but we find them in early newspapers. Uh, you know, I found a few where people have been convicted of stealing pies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they tend to be made from eel. You can buy meat pies, you can buy fruit pies, but they tend to be made from eel. Um, <clears throat> and then during the 19th century, the shops themselves, because of the contestations around the street, the physical cartography of the London street, which was by the 18... 18- 20s changing from a Georgian to a Victorian street and changing in the sense that the concept of London was changing because of the rise of the bourgeoisie, uh, we find that the shops suffer a kind of class descent. So there are very few wandering piemen. Uh, Mayhew talks about them as being almost extinct by the 1850s or penniless. Dickens talks about the wandering piemen really just being an adjunct to street gambling because they used to toss pennies for pies. Um, And we find that people like Pierce Egan's Jerry and Tom would now not cross the street to go into a pie shop because they become places of this new interstitial class of of, of cockneys. So Dickens and his ilk might see these shops... Uh, as as places where they'd go, but the, the the elites, the kind of the wealthy, would go nowhere near them. And as we go through the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, the middle classes leave London, and that's significant because the shops that are left are in the kind of penumbras of working class street markets, uh, which, which which are challenges to to the authority of the city itself. But they become places where the urban poor uh, are. They're left. It's kind of like the tired of the rich leave the city, and in their places, which is why you get you know places in the in the very centre of London in the nineteenth century, like Covent Garden, having the worst slums in the country, the rookeries, all these kind of places, and the pie shops, which we think uh, sell. They may have sold meat pies up until this point, but we're not sure because we're not really sure what they sold. They probably sold soup. Uh, they may have sold, well, actually, we're not entirely sure. They sold pies of a, of a certain kind. Um, but at some point, 1880s, 1890s, they probably stopped selling eel pie as as we would think of it, and they they changed their offering to a much more working class diet that's based on speed and availability of very common foodstuffs like potatoes, Irish, um, and meat pies, very cheap meat pies. And it's all covered in a parsley liquor, this kind of parsley gravy. Um, This thin parsley sauce, which is exactly liquor. Yeah, exactly. Um, Thank you. So to clarify then in the I suppose the the sort of titular uh, topic of your both your doctoral work and of this piece, we when you talk about eels and back to the commas, yeah, yeah, eel, eel pie and mash, we are talking about three separate things. We are talking about stewed eels. We're talking about jellied eels, and we're talking about meat pies, mashed potato. And the liquor, which is historically, but not always these days, made from the juices of the stewed eels. 
Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break now. And then uh, after the break, I'd love to come back to this important word, interstitial, that mm -hmm. you already brought up. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sina Rousseau talking with Stuart Friedman about his forthcoming article titled Resistances from a Stubborn Past, London's Fading Eel, Pie and Mash Shops, which will appear in Gastronomica's newest issue, 23.2, which will be available soon. So, uh, Stuart, we've been unpacking some of the basics of the fascinating piece uh, that you've got coming out soon on fading eel pie and mash shops in London's mm -hmm. East End, okay. I believe. Namely, uh, what Cockney designates in relation to a key thesis of the piece that eel and these, in your words from your website, endangered but surviving establishments mm -hmm. stands as a metaphor for Cockney. And the all-important question of comma placement, whether eel, pie, and mash should be understood as three separate and possibly unrelated offerings. Yep. Which I think, per your uh, description before the break, suggests that previously they wouldn't have been completely separate, but might be now. But moving away from, or moving on to the less material aspects... Uh, I mean, understanding these material aspects mm -hmm. of the topic is not unimportant, as I hope you'll agree. But the focus, the key focus, I think, is on the less material aspects of these spaces. The shops, which I think, importantly, you point out, are places that sell food which are classified as neither restaurant nor cafe. Sure. They're providing a so-called third place, mm -hmm. something in between work and home. So this is going back to this important word of interstitial uh, for its patrons. And you also describe the patrons themselves, at least the early clientele, as interstitial. right? And this is a quote from you also, uh, the class of artisans, tradesmen and the like in the early 19th century who would soon be replaced by the new urban poor 
as the middle classes withdrew from the city, which is mm -hmm. what you were describing just before the break. Exactly. Could you talk to this idea of this liminal space catering to or providing conviviality, hospitality for, uh, I suppose, a rapidly or maybe not so rapidly changing demographic in London's history? I think, as I mentioned in the first part, <clears throat> we don't really know um, so much about what these shops looked like before the end of the century. Um, we know that the the shops themselves were, um, I mean, the, the kind of cod history that's always rattled out is that, you know, there were, there was this particular shop in 101 Union Street, I think it was a Burroughs or something, and that was the first pie mash shop. Well, my research clearly states that that isn't true, and I mean, there's a there's a, 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 a shepherd painting from 1835 that shows a pie shop. But we don't really know what pie shops and pie mass shops, where they changed. And I use this notion of a taxon to, to a kind of biological notion of a taxon to trace the changes and developments within what these shops were and what they sold. I think what we can probably say is that they went from cross-class um, establishments that sold eel pies and meat pies and until the 1880s 1890s when someone put this meal together um, we we don't really know what they sold but what we are seeing is that they start to cater for the urban poor they no longer cater for this interstitial group um, that's kind of personified by Dickens and his his characters, um, and and the food is really uh, a fuel a fuel for working class people, but they also become part of this what Gareth Stephen Jones calls a culture of consolation. Um, so they're places they're kind of um, they're neither they're neither restaurants nor cafes as you indicated they're shops uh, they're places of speed and food they're places which embody a kind of new working class culture a, a kind of working class conviviality that's been formed during the mid to late part of the century which may have and, I, and i'm very wary about saying this but may have kind of pre-capitalist convivialities we might be seeing the kind of overspill from the control of the streets whereby people came in from the the, the, the countryside and and were banned eventually by the victorians from you know cruel animal sports or uh, riots we, we can talk about the the decline of the apprentice system we we might see the the bactian carnivalesque closed down but this culture kind of seeps into the convivialities of what we might see as a modern pie and mash shop which are indisputably working class um and as you mentioned they're a kind of third place this is oldenburg's notion of a of neither a, a formal shop he to oldenburg talks about barber shops and i think that's a good a good example of how their kind of community venues but of a quite strange and distinct sort, certainly within the, within the modern neoliberal city. They're quite unique, I think. So uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea that you described the transformation into 
from a kind of more bourgeois establishment into something that is more speedier and mm-hmm. providing food fast. But we're not talking about fast food, are we? Because that conviviality is really important. And that's something that I think really comes across in the images that are available on your website that mm. show it's, you know, it's not people just standing in a queue and and leaving. It's people being in a space, sure. even if it's a space that is, uh, as you also described very vividly, I mean, there's the, the much that is so... Um, Cinematic, I should say, about your writing. Um, well, that's very kind of you. Um, I mean, I should say that the the the, the 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 book called "The Englishman and the Eel" was my was my third book, and and I didn't really I didn't really intend to. You know, my my work as a as a, photo- a photographer and photojournalist has, has has covered lots of you know miserable things, and and the, actually that book was an attempt to come back home after living and working in, in what we used to call the developing world for for nearly thirty years. And an, and an attempt to explore my own, well, I was going to say interstitial class space because I do come from these communities, but I haven't lived there uh, for a long time. But you're right that the kind of convivialities and the kind of um, working classness is 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 visible in those spaces, and they're visible in, in 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 the images. And the reason I think that I wanted to make that work in the, in the first place before the PhD. Um, was because those spaces and that class has been systematically demonised over the last 30 years politically. Um, Because when we talk about working class people in in London, we tend to see this kind of stereotype of the chav, the benefit scrounger, the football hooligan... um, all of these if, if kind I may, of... If I may interrupt, um, just for readers of the who are maybe based in North America or the so-called Global North uh, CHAV, could you explain to listeners what you mean by that? Yeah, CHAV is an odd term uh, and came into kind of parlance during the early Blair years. And uh, Owen Jones, a British political commentator of the left, wrote a book about these this designation who were the kind of people that um the middle classes used to laugh at uh, at dinner parties in islington which is a, a kind of code for a metropolitan elite uh which is slightly pointless but um chav was a designation of a poor unsophisticated common working class person that dressed in sports clothes and uh, got drunk easily and used to go out fighting and follow football. Okay, so would it be would it be wrong for uh, listeners or readers to kind of conflate that with the idea of a football hooligan as maybe stereotyped or caricatured as that might be? Well, there's a, there's a, there's there's certainly there's certainly um, there's an overlap in that. Right. There's an overlap in that. But I think the political notion. Well, I mean, remember there were football hooliganism. There, what? Excuse my terrible grammatical syntax. There, there's been a hooliganism problem in Britain since the seventies, late sixties actually. Um, but Chav was a particular moment 
of laughing at the British working classes. I think it was a particular point, and it came during the early Blair years, and it came for a reason because New Labour saw itself as trying to impose a kind of European uh, social democratic project on Britain, and it and it it, it laughed and vilified the poor who didn't fit into a globalised neoliberal economy. And I think that's the specificity of it. So Chad becomes this catch-all term for people that are poor and without culture. And that fits very well for the depictions of working class people in, for example, the tabloid press, the sun, uh, you know, the star, but it also bleeds into what we have now about this media landscape like the Mail and the Times, which which still vilify working class people in, in a particular way. Thank you for that explanation of what is clearly a, quite a complex, uh, both political and cultural thing to understand. But I, I think what's really interesting is the idea of the transformation into something that is becomes a kind of cheap, fast uh, space for getting food and especially the idea of conviviality as opposed to, uh, I mean, you mentioned globalised mm. or globalisation that might bring in something like a McDonald's. So in South Africa, where I live, for example, there would also be what we call spaza shops in sure. the townships. And they are also spaces that are historically important and uh, cheap and available to a working class, but they are not the McDonald's where people are queuing up. And I see, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's some kind of overlap there with that kind of idea of something which has roots, historical roots, rather than being a kind of Americanization or McDonaldization. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, interestingly, before I come to that, the Cockney was used by, in my research, I, I think the Cockney was used by capital after the Second World War to demonize this process of Americanization of British culture. It was seen as a kind of traditional bulwark against, um, you know, Americanization in the 50s. Uh, and it was also seen as a bulwark against mass immigration, which is how Cockney had been used in the 60s and the 70s, if we look at, you know, Powell and his rivers of blood nonsense. Um, but I think what's different and unique about uh, these spaces, about pie and mass shops, is that they were coterminous with the culture of restaurants in the 19th century. So th- there's there's a bleed, there's a kind of cultural bleed into this developing nascent urban London working class culture that starts to develop around the middle of the century. And it sort of mirrors uh, the growth of London's restaurants, which of course are are Parisian, they're they're French restaurants, restaurants are French. Um, And what you find is this kind of weird symbiosis that working class people have different places to go and eat you know, there are cheap chop houses, there are cook houses, there are coffee stalls. There's, of course, the poor house, the workhouse. And there's some evidence that early pie shops 
sold soup. I mean, they actually sold soup during the Second World War because they couldn't get anything else, right? Although eels weren't rationed, they did sell soup, which which has been completely forgotten by those that seek to valify and valorize pie mash shops as being a completely uh, uni, uh, you know, a, a space where only sells this. We don't do anything else. We just do this. Um, and God save the Queen, nonsense. The King. Um, but, yeah, but I, exactly, well, now, yeah, whatever. Um, but 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 the, the shops themselves became this kind of weird mix of different things. And I think what they're not is that they're not restaurants, but they're not cafes. They're shops. Weird, weird kind of, it's a kind of weird archaeology of, of, a, of a changed high street, which means <clears throat> they are the end line of a, of a, of a taxon of working class and working class foods, which have a really unique place. And I can't think of any other um, places in, certainly in Britain, I don't know about South Africa very much, um, but I can't think of any other kind of places in Britain that serve a singular diet. And I've had such an such an interesting and circuitous route to an end product, if, if that makes sense. But they're also, of course, the product of mass immigration because all the great families um, were immigrants, right? So um, the cooks who were, I think, and certainly claimed to be the first family of this diet were, of course, Irish. And then the Manses, and they intermarried with the Cooks, were Italian. The Hucks, who probably, uh, well, they were Dutch, and there were other Dutch families involved in this. Um, and the Kellys are Irish. So this notion that, that it's a completely, you know, British, God save the king, as you corrected me, <laughs> um, it's, of course, nonsense. Well, a bit like, a bit like fish and chips, isn't it? Well, fish and chips is Yiddish, which which is another story. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. yeah it's another story. Yeah, um, it is also absolutely fascinating. In the interest of time, sure. So um, sorry that I see oh, that, that I see. We no, please don't apologise. Yeah. Um, there's, I only fear that readers like myself might be frustrated by not getting all the answers from your article. Maybe they would get it from your PhD if and when it is eventually published, because it's going sure. to be much more voluminous. But um, even though there's so much, you you talk about that there's a lot that remains elusive and unknown huh. about the history of these shops and yep. not the present of these shops, which is what you're looking into. But mm. was there anything that really surprised you in the course of your research? Not really, because I grew up with these places. I'm from this community. I'm from this uh, culture. I mean, I'm, you know, no, no longer, but I speak the same language. I mean, literally, I speak the same language. And I think, you know, we talked about Cockney as a, as a geographic locator. Uh, but Cockney, of course, is, is linguistic as well. And Cockney has changed and evolved. And, you know, now we talk about multicultural London English and et cetera, et cetera. But when I when I walk into a pie and mash shop, I, you know, inevitably drop my H's, uh, you know, and and talk in a kind of not Cockney rhyming slang. I hasten to add that that's just a just a 
let's just let's just not go there because that's kind of a a, a semi comic not necessarily creation but uh it's it's kind of you know that dick van dyke mary poppins nonsense that i think irritates most people in the east End. um but you know my my voice changes my my attitude changes i talk about a working classness and i think i talk about merleau ponty's working class comportment that the body feels comfortable in these situations i mean i think what's really interesting is the the disparity between and if i may just ramble for a second Pie mash shops in London. Yeah, well, cheers. (laughs) Pie mash shops in the East End of London are disappearing because the populations that go to them have also disappeared or they're aging and nobody eats eel anymore for various different notions of disgust, et cetera, et cetera. But they're opening in Essex where people are the descendants, first, second generation of the descendants of East Enders. And those spaces are, in a sense, performative and emulative of the cultures that they try and remember of their parents or their grandparents. Sometimes it's fantasy. And you find that people become much more Cockney than people from the East End of London. Because Cockney's now, you know, if you go to the boroughs of Hackney, Newham, you know, if you go to East Ham, they're Asian, they're Caribbean. Um, You know, there's lots of intermarriage in London. It's a very mixed and always has been, right? I mean, you know, we had the Huguenots, we had the Jews, then we had the Bangladeshis, et cetera, et cetera, the Caribbeans. It's mixed. What you find in Essex is this kind of performative, and I don't mean to damn Essex people because I think in my writing I, I valorise this kind of culture that is warm and working class, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and people from Essex get get a terrible time by being seen as this kind of thick, neo-chavvy, you know, um, entrepreneurial proletariat and they're not there's some there's some fantastic you know Essex is a fantastic and very misunderstood place but there is this performative element of of what Cockney is you know um and it becomes what I talk about this kind of secular era of which is the Jewish notion of of a of a kind of safe space where you can do the stuff that you want to do um and I'm sure Jewish listeners will will take me to task for that terrible description of something very sacred, but but you get the point, yeah. Well, it um, it brought to mind here in Cape Town, uh, there is an area where there's apparently a red thread around oh, yeah. um, a public area where Jewish people can uh, feel at home during yeah. the Sabbath and so on. Exactly. And I think the pie and mash shops are kind of analogous to that kind of thing. So you walk in, it's a kind of, I describe it as a portal to a slightly uncertain past where you can, you know, historically people, you know, spat eel bones onto the floor. These are places where bourgeois notions of manners are slightly different. People might speak, you know, talk with their mouths full of food. Even the cutlery is different. People eat with um, forks and spoons. They don't use knives. There's a huge debate within pie and mash shops about why why that might be. Um, there's sawdust on the floor to mop up what used to be eel bones, and these are places. Which could be a conversation for a whole. Uh, I, I'm rambling podcast. again. Right? I'm, so, I'm sorry. You are not rambling. No, it's <laughs> just like pointing in all the uh, really fascinating areas that your research takes people. And I'm just thinking about. Well, it's interesting for me that. Jamie Oliver really never did anything about eels. 
in being the Essex boy? Well, yeah, I mean, the eel is a, is a kind of fascinating and maligned and endangered, but also feared creature. So absolutely, um, we could we could I could ramble on about that as well, but I won't carry on. So. We do need to start wrapping up now. Yeah. Um, but I would like to just ask, um, in addition to reminding listeners to go to your website, which has got your fascinating portfolio and uh, and also links to, I believe. If, is it your latest book about the coffee houses in India? No, the coffee houses predated the. Um, so I, you know, I spent twenty years on and off living and working in South Asia, and I lived in Delhi for a while. Uh, the coffee houses were was the previous book I did in twenty fifteen, and and as I say, well, I, I never intended. My first book was about the war in Lebanon. Uh, you know, I've covered misery and death and war and famine and all sorts of nonsense, and and it really was just a coincidence that I've used food to examine. I mean, the the the, the palaces of memory, which was the book about the Indian coffee houses, is really about the the last of the Nerovian moment, the memories of. Pre- well, that certainly Egypt. looks uh, like a beautiful book, also, and thank you. And I'm sure that uh, many listeners will be looking forward to reading your article. Could we? Could you tell us what you're working on now? Is there anything? I'm. I'm. The only thing I'm working on at the moment is not panicking about my <laughs> thesis defence, and I, I. I find myself at a bit of a strange place, really, uh, trying to take stock after thirty years of being a photojournalist and a writer, and having just done this PhD, which I've, I've done full time. It was a, um, a studentship, a fully paid studentship from Westminster University. It gave me this opportunity to step back from this this long career and find out what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some teaching um, and I may go back to, to the, the photo business. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's Great. The short well, answer. I'm sure your experience will be very valuable to share with students. Well, let's, And let's, by the way, I believe you're at University of Westminster. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Jamie Oliver also went to the Technicon, the Westminster Technicon. Oh, neither, right. Neither okay. here nor there. No, no, no. But we wish you all the very best with your uh, thesis defense. Thank you. And thank you again for your really fascinating article. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Stuart, for joining us. Listeners will be able to read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.2, coming soon. For more details, please visit gastronomica.org and join us again next week. And don't forget to subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.